Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Welcome again to this portion of the, the Bible. The acts or the deeds of the apostles. But as we will see today that there are as many words as there are deeds. As many speakings as there are doings. And as we said at the introduction of this book, the common title is not completely descriptive of the content. The title, The Acts of the Apostle, isn't really enough. And that's not an inspired portion, it's just the title of the book, right? So an extended title would be more suitable, like The Continuing Words and Deeds of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Today we're going to see emphasis not on the deeds or the acts of the apostles, but rather the emphasis on the speech or the message of the apostles or apostle, namely Peter. And what a message, what a speech, what a sermon it is from verse 22 to 36. And there are no fewer than 19 speeches or sermons or messages in the book of Acts excluding the non-Christian speakers. There are eight by Peter, there's one by Stephen, one by James, and nine by guess who? The Apostle Paul. Approximately 20% of the book of Acts is speeches or addresses, particularly by Peter and Paul. 25% if you include Stephen's address in Acts chapter 7. And so, it's nine o'clock in the morning on this, the day of Pentecost. The crowd has gathered and they've just witnessed a list of unprecedented occurrences. Possibly the strange sound of a rushing mighty gale force wind. Also, the disciples all speaking in different unlearned languages that are common to the hearers. And the hearers are Jews from all over the Mediterranean. I think we had a look at this last week. As far, as, as far east as Iran, as far west as Italy, as far north as Turkey, and as far south as Libya. That's where these people were from, these Jews. And they were amazed... And perplexed. Some marveled. And some mocked. Last week we heard Peter respond resolutely with clarity. With confidence and boldness of speech. Quoting the prophet Joel. In order to describe and properly define that which was observed. 
concluding the prophecy by saying in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, underline, shall be saved. Peter today will give us good reason to appreciate who this Lord actually is. And why he's trustworthy and the one to be called upon with regard to the saving of the soul. Here we now have a third unprecedented, which means first time incident. The preaching of the very first sermon on the very first official birthday of the church. And it's the most unlikely of individuals who's doing the preaching. Peter, a lowly blue-collar worker, a fisherman, far from learned and unskilled and seemingly untrained man, yet one who was in attendance, one who was in attendance with and learned from the greatest teacher and was now filled with the same spirit who would Endue and empower him, fulfilling the promise of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1, verse 8, which says, But you shall receive dunamis or dynamo, or where we get our word dynamic or dynamite power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be what? You see what you're empowered to be? When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to be witnesses. To me, Jesus says, right here, first of all, in Jerusalem, which is exactly where they are. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Power or dynamic ability to be my witnesses or to be witnesses of me. Peter now epitomizes all that this means. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, he says. Men of Israel, or you descendants of Israel. Now, who was named Israel originally from which Israel the nation took its name Jacob Jacob wrestled with God right and had his name changed to Israel a prince with God one conquered by God that's what it means and then he went on to have sons right he had 12 of them and his sons became known as the 12 sons not of Jacob but the 12 sons of this man whose name was Israel and they then went on to have children, and they became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Or, men of Israel, fam. Because that's what they were, right? F family. Hear these words, or listen to me carefully. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. 
It's so strong, it borders on a command. You'd be like, whoa, okay. In response to, listen to what I have to say. He says, what next? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Now that means different things to everybody sitting in this room, I suspect. But what did it mean to those who were listening in our text? Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus, or Yehoshua, or Joshua in Hebrew. That's my son's middle name. Jordan Joshua Prendergast. Jordan Jesus Prendergast, if you like. Because it's the same word, it's the same name. And as common as Jordan might be, is as common as Jesus was, or Yehoshua, or Joshua was in their time. It was a common name. But it's not just Jesus, it's what? Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was just as common as the name Jesus. It was a common place, which was in northern Israel, in the province of Galilee. A seemingly common man from a common place, a little bit like saying, Leroy from Peckham. I mean, I had to pick somewhere, right? I thought that was probably the best place. I hope I don't offend anyone by saying that. Leroy from Peckham, complete, a complete contrast to Maximilian from West Kensington. Right, you, you hear those two names and them two places and you know that them, <laughs> they're two worlds apart. I mean, it don't even sound right. It'd be like, um, I'd like to introduce you to the new prime minister. Ladies and gentlemen, would you welcome Leroy from Peckham? That is what they heard when he said, Men of Israel, listen to me. Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth. They'd be like, who? Jesus from where? What? That country bunking from up north. And it was this same way that the Lord referred to himself when he appeared, if you remember, to Paul on the road to Damascus. He says to Paul, actually at the time, Saul, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, you won't see that in Acts chapter 9, because he just says Jesus. But when you look in Acts chapter 22, when Paul makes reference to what took place in Acts 9, that's what he says. And the Lord is speaking at this moment to this stiff-necked brother called Saul. And Saul despised Christians and the Christ that they followed. With contempt. Like, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? A seemingly common man from a common place, yet... Listen to what Peter now says. 
All right, you see him as a commoner, right, from a common place. Yet, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Huh. Everybody stopped laughing. Everybody stopped laughing at this point. Now watch the method of contrasting arguments that Peter is going to use at least four times. You think he's a common and contemptible individual, but, but he actually is a man attested by God. A man approved of God, confirmed, verified, vindicated, and demonstrated to be genuine. You despised him. But God approved him. How? By miracles, wonders, and signs. First of all, miracles. That which brings unquestionable attention. Unquestionable attention to the supernatural. Be like, whoa. Miracles. That which Jesus did during his earthly ministry was other. It was supernaturally explained. It was paranormal. That means para is next to, right? Parano supernatural, paranormal is next to, but it's not normal. It's other. And the scribes and the Pharisees acknowledged this. They never denied it. They were always concerned about the source. Remember they said that which Jesus did was from Beelzebub. Attributing the work of the spirit to the power of the devil. Nonetheless, miracles. Supernatural. Also, wonders. This describes the effect that the miracles had. The vast majority of people were overwhelmed when they saw these supernatural occurrences and they wondered. Because it was a wonder. And then signs. These miracles and wonders, they pointed somewhere. Like a sign does, right? Like a sign to somewhere or to someone they asked, could this be the Christ? Because of the signs that were pointing in his direction. John chapter 7, verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which we see this man has done? Miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. This is not something that you can get away from. You can't pretend, he's saying, that it didn't happen. And you didn't just hear it. You didn't just hear it reported. Some of you saw it. 
with your own eyes. He says, as you yourselves also know. In other words, as we would say today, this is something that you cannot deny. And these are only the first sentences of Peter's message. Yet it continues with the same pace and intensity. Here comes another contrast, verse 23. Him, Jesus, being delivered, Jesus of Nazareth, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Ooh, ouch. God did one thing, then you did another. God the Father delivered him up, gave him over, yielded over to as a part of his great plan, and you put him to death. You see the contrast? Now at this point, we can get into a big discussion concerning foreknowledge. I'm going to duck that. You know why? Because that discussion, however long it is, how many of us want to get into it, that discussion will only boil down to one thing. Once it's percolated, it boils down to one thing. You had better find out what God has determined. Let's not argue about, well, you know, did he look down the corridors of time? And You know what I'm saying? What is it? How does it really work? Let's not get into that at least today. I'm not saying it's not a discussion to get into. Not for today. But once you've had it, you ha- you're left with... God has determined something. God has purposed something. What we now need to do is, we need to get on the right side of that dividing line standard. Like nothing long. Once you realize that God has determined something, all you need to do now is make sure that you're on the right side of that which he determines. Amen? Now, isn't it scary that God has got a plan? Nothing don't catch him by surprise like God is leaning over heaven with white knuckles. Oh, my goodness. What am I going to do now? God has got a plan. Nothing takes him by surprise. On the contrary, we are the ones who need to discover that plan and act accordingly. Amen? Amen? lest we be found even to be fighting against God. God did something, and these thinking that what they were doing was right were wrong. Some of these in the crowd were probably those gathered before Pilate a couple of weeks prior, who chose Barabbas over Jesus of Nazareth, shouting, Give us Barabbas. Crucify. What do I do with Jesus? Says Pilate. Crucify him. See? And Peter says, and you. You took him. Verse 23b. You took him by lawless, wicked hands. And crucified and put him to death. Peter here condemning. Check it. The Jewish persecutors as well as the Roman executors. 
Peter condemning the Jewish persecutors as well as the Roman executors. Wow, what a message. Not mine, I mean Peter's message, right? Verse 24. Whom God raised up. God gave him up and you put him to death. God gave him over and you did away with him. You put him down, but God raised him up. Do you see the overlapping contrasts? Having loosed the pains of death. Psalm 116 verse 3 says, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. I wonder what it feels like on the corridor that leads to death. That's what is being described here in Psalm 116. Second Samuel chapter 22 verse 6 says something similar. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. How many of you know we all will experience to some degree the confrontation of death? It's like, hey, it's not new. I heard Ray Comfort say, the statistics still say that 10 out of 10 die. And very much like individuals who don't think about a pension. What? Pension. I'm like 19, 20 years old. What am I thinking about a pension? That's like 40, 50 years down the road. I ain't, I ain't got money to waste on no pension. And hey, you know they say time has respect for no one. Time just keeps on moving. And before you know it, the years are rolling by and then boom, you're 40, like me. <laughs> you be like, wow, where on earth has my life come? I'm, I'm past the halfway mark. If based on what the Lord said to Moses regarding 70 years being our portion, I'm past the halfway mark now. And I'm like, where did it all go? Sometimes I feel like my son's got a bicycle. I feel like just going out to play sometimes. You ever feel like that as a big man? <laughs> you try that. Oh, you know, honey, I'm just going to go out with, with Jordan on his bike. And, what do you mean you're going out on your bike? <laughs> right? I, I, I'm just... Going out to watch him. Keep an eye on him. <laughs> and this time, if you're anything like me, I got one of them jump bikes. And I'm there jumping off the pavement and teaching my son how to do bunny hops and endos and 360s. Because I, I still want to play. Why? Because I think that I'm... St I mean, the only thing that's changed is my... I've lost some hair follicles. <laughs> and I'm a bit bigger and a bit weightier. Time. And if you don't act wisely and get yourself a pension, there will come the day when you regret that. And just like death, many don't want to make an investment that contributes to the day that is inevitable. Yet, in Christ, death has no power over us. 
Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? They have no power and no victory over us in Christ. Yet, for those that don't know Christ, get ready for the pains of death to surround you and the pangs of Sheol to lay hold of you. These pangs or pains or noose or snares, like ropes, these bands or bonds, are invisibly thrown around us. We are wrapped and tied around about, and they get tighter and tighter as time progresses. Until we find ourselves constricted and bound by the steely grip of death. Who is able to deliver? Who is able to deliver from the terrifying clutches of death? Well, only he who death was not able to overpower. Our rock and our redeemer. It was just as easy for Christ to be delivered over to death as it was to be delivered from death. Now, you've got to hear that. Because you think, oh, for Jesus to be delivered over to death, okay, I can, that's not really hard. But to be, to be delivered from death, well, we need to understand both of them are just as easy for God. Like Jesus said about that man who, I can't remember, was he blind or deaf or lame? He was sick. And Jesus said to him, you know what? Pick up your bed and go home. Actually, he said, your sins are forgiven you. That's it. And they were like, what? How dare you? Who's this man that thinks he can forgive sin? Only God can forgive sin. So Jesus says, which one is easier for me to say? <laughs> like one is harder than the other. I'm God. So hear what, brethren? Pick up your things and go home. And he did. And what does that prove? That proves that neither of the two were hard for him. And it just goes to con contribute to the fact that he's God. Because none of them ain't hard. It was as easy for Jesus to be delivered from death as it was for him to be delivered, to be delivered to death. Because death has no power over him whatsoever. Remember, it was the Lord Jesus who submitted himself to death. He wasn't overpowered by death. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. On the cross, at this moment, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up. His spirit. He gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. John chapter 19 verse 28. After this Jesus knowing. Oh it's beautiful. I love it. Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. Hey. That the scripture might be fulfilled said. And it seems like this is the last thing to be fulfilled now. Now this, he said I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, boom, now it's finished. 
And now, okay, now that it's done, and I've fully completed and fulfilled my purpose for coming, it's done, hey, I'm ready to go now. Not oh, wrestle him to the ground and we're going to take your life. And, oh, please, please don't. No. I've done what I can. You remember throughout the scripture, throughout the gospels, you hear references to they come to get him. But you know what? Jesus just walked through, just passed through the crowd. They're about to throw him off the top of some ledge, some precipice. He just bopped through the crowd. Why? Because his time had not yet come. Like what? You're going to take his life? I don't think so. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Notice it wasn't taken from him. You must realize what you're dealing with here. None other than the one who has power over death, hell, and the grave. Revelation chapter 1 verse 18. I am. I am he who lives and was dead. You see, it just, it just rolls off his tongue like none of them ain't different to the other. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, how many of you know when you got the keys, you can come and go as you like? Alive? You know when you left something at home and you're going out shopping and you go out and you're in your hurry and you're trying to grab the bags and blah, blah, blah and looking for the car key and boom, you, sh- you slam the front door. And you think, wait a minute. Oh no, I forgot my wallet. And then you go to try and open the door and then you realize, oh my goodness. Robert, you donut. You forgot, the key. you left the keys inside the house. No keys. How many of you know I can't go back in? Because I ain't got the keys. When it comes to transitioning through the realms, when it comes to transitioning between the realms of life and death, the Lord Jesus can come and go as he likes. Why? Because he's got the keys. Man, I'm going to milk this one. Don't worry. John chapter 10, verse 14, because it's sweet. This, oh my God, this understanding this, Jesus says you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. We ain't trying to make this up. I ain't trying to, you know I never wrote this. How do I try and convince you of the potency and the power and of the truth of God's word. Look, John chapter 10, verse 14. Oh, that's not right. Oh, I haven't got it. Or maybe I have. Huh. After this, Jesus... I think I might have to go back to the other slide. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished... Oh, no. What am I talking about? John chapter 10. Yeah. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, says Jesus, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life 
Notice, I lay it down for the sheep. And other sheep I have, that's talking about us to some degree, I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, if it weren't clear enough, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not, you see what the verse says? Because it, Acts chapter 2, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The prince of life, he could not be held by the empire of death, although it has a vice-like grip. He tasted death, but he could not be held by it. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 2. Now Peter is building a rock-solid case, proving the Messiah to be Jesus of Nazareth. We saw last week him quoting the prophecy of Joel. Then he makes reference to the miracles, wonders, and signs done by Christ, authenticating him. Now, we see him make reference to the resurrection of Christ, overcoming death, right? Now, Peter is going to point to the Psalms, making reference now to David, who wasn't just a psalmist, who wasn't just a poet, but was also a prophet. Verse 25, Acts chapter 2. For David says concerning him, who? Christ the Messiah, Quote in Psalm 16, he says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Now David has in mind the experience of death, as we have been talking about. And God has shown him that at the point of his death, he will be safe. When the moment of death comes... I will not be frightened or alarmed, says David. I will not be moved. Isn't that wonderful to be able to say that? When a moment of death comes, I will not be frightened or alarmed. I will not be moved. Now, the Bible says that death is our greatest enemy. If you're not going to be moved, David, by death, it stands to reason that then nothing is going to move you. If death is the greatest enemy, does that not stand to reason? Why? For he is at my right hand. Being at the right hand in the Bible indicates two things. One, royalty, or as in this case, protection. Throughout the Old Testament, you hear God talk about the might and the strength of his right arm. If God's got you, in terms of protecting you by your right arm, you're God. No one can get you. He talks about his strength and protection. Hence David not being terrified. Verse 26. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Check it. I will be glad, says David. 
which is the opposite to that which is normally present at death. Now, not only does David experience peace in his soul, but look also in his body. Moreover, middle of verse 26, my flesh also will rest in hope. He will not only be safe in his soul, but also in his body. My flesh, my body will be safe. The word is, it will camp out in safety. Temporarily in hope or in anticipation. You know, we have that same hope. If we die, that is physically to be absent from the body, because we're not our body, right? You, you are a spirit, you have a soul, and you live in a body. Your body is your tent. It's your dwelling place, it's your house. When Jesus says, I go away to prepare a place for you, don't get the picture of some big mansion, you know what I mean, with, you know what I'm saying, um, 55 bedrooms and, oh, this is the mansion the Lord is going to prepare for you. You're going to get a big mansion and you're only going to get a, a three-bedroom semi-detached. No, he's talking about the body. He's talking about the fact that he's going to prepare a place for you, a body for you. And Paul talks about how, how he desperately wants to be in that new body, right? Because this one's creaking and... We have that same hope, not just for the soul, but also for the body, because the body's in the grave, and it's going to end up rotting. But there's hope for the body, because the soul and the body are going to be reunited in the last day. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, right? And the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, Right? The dead in Christ, those who died years ago and are with the Lord in terms of their spiritual body, have not been reunited with their physical body, will be united with their physical body, and then we also will be caught up together with them in the air. That's the only time a person ain't going to have to face the clutches of death, is if, we, is, is if the Lord comes while we're still alive, because immediately we're going to be raptured and our bodies will be changed. Our body won't hit the dirt. It will be immediately changed. That's the only time believers won't experience death. Again, straight from Psalm 16, look at verse 27. David says, For you will not leave my, and this is it, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, which is the realm of the dead, right, which is like described, Abraham's bosom as they looked across the chasm and they could see um, the rich man. Remember when Lazarus was with Abraham? That's Hades, the realm of the dead. There's no one in there, at least in the Abraham's bosom part, we suspect they were the Lord. But in the other section, the rich man is still there. As we talked about last week, Judas is still there. David says, you will not leave my soul in Hades, in the realm of the dead, nor, check it, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now this is interesting. Here we see a distinction. The first part of verse 27 is speaking about who? David, about his soul. But the second half of the verse speaks of who? The Messiah, Jesus. Can you see it? 
Verse 27, for you will not leave my soul, David's soul, in Hades, the realm of the dead, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. David couldn't have been talking about himself because David went on to see corruption. David would die in his body and he would see corruption or decompose. But as for your holy one, he will not see corruption or the decomposition of his body. Who is that speaking of? See, now we can see that. Do you think Peter's hearers began to see that? Can you see this amazing prophecy tucked away in this predictive psalm? Look at David's response to this incredible revelation from God. Verse 28. Huh. Wow, based on that, you have, made me, you have made known to me the ways of life. It's amazing, God, that my soul is not going to be left in Hades. And then your Holy One, this is a revelation that David is receiving. Wow. And on that basis, I'm like, oh, David's like, you're revealing to me the ways of life. God revealing the redemptive power of the gospel centuries beforehand. Now watch Peter make application of this prophecy of David. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, says Peter. That he is both dead and buried. And his tomb, if you want to go and check by exhuming or digging up the bones, is here with us today. In other words, David's body is in the grave in a decomposed state. Who on earth could David have been talking about then? Who was David prophetically speaking of? If David evidently wasn't speaking of himself, who was he speaking about? Peter is saying indirectly between the lines to this audience. Can they hear Peter's argument? I mean, how would you respond? How would you argue or resist the power of Peter's declaration? Verse 30. Therefore, he continues, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, that is David's descendant, one who would come from the line of David, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his, that is David's throne. Remember what they call Jesus? Son of David. Verse 31. He, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in the realm of the dead in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter is explaining the true meaning of that which David said. Peter is rightly dividing the word of truth. And it's mind-blowing. Now, they knew these verses, but didn't understand the meaning. Something they were all familiar with, but didn't understand the application of. The culmination of all that David said, and that which we have witnessed, proves what? Verse 32, that this Jesus, God has raised up. 
of which we are all witnesses. Over 500, over a 40-day period, verse 33, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, oh my goodness, you can hear them whispering. Being exalted, who? Jesus of Nazareth. Exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Remember, Peter is describing the experience that they've witnessed, which is them speaking in different languages. Peter, with great intensity, now fully applies the text to their situation and circumstances. This is what all of this means, he says. And not just what it means, but what it means to you. When you got up out of your bed and you came out this morning and walked into the temple, you had no idea what you were going to be confronted with. And maybe not for all of you sitting here this morning, but maybe for one or maybe two. I know some have switched off now. But maybe for one or maybe two, the same is true for you. You got up out of your bed and you came out your house this morning. And you drove or you took a bus or you walked over to this makeshift temple. And you sit here as they stood there in the temple, guilty. Because ultimately... Jesus of Nazareth was tortured and executed because of our sin. Now hopefully you don't have to imagine how this audience felt. You should be personally experiencing how they felt. Peter now draws on one more passage in the Psalms to complete his message. And this comes from Psalm 110, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now this doesn't come out clearly in the English or even in the Greek. Notice you get a hint from the translator. You have Lord, the first Lord. All caps. You see that? And then you have the second Lord, capitalized, capital L-O-R-D. So it seems to show us that there's a distinction between these two individuals, right? But it doesn't come out in the Greek because it says, curios, curios. My curious said, sorry, the curios said to my curios. You have to look at the original Hebrew in Psalm 110. Because in there it says, Jehovah said to my Adonai. Probably the Father speaking to who? The Word. The pre-incarnate Christ. Remember, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So probably the Father speaking to the Word. And the Word is the one who became the Son. The Lord Jesus actually quotes the same psalm in defense of his deity in Matthew chapter 24. 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, verse 41, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son or the offspring or the descendant of David. He said to them, Okay, if that be the case, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? I mean, who calls their son Lord? Or their descendant, their great, 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 great grandson, Lord? Hmm. Verse 44, Jesus quotes the same psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. You see, the penny dropped. They were like, oh my goodness. Back to Acts chapter 2, verse 36 as we wrap up. Therefore... Remember, any time in the Bible you see a therefore, you have to back up and see what it's there for. Now, we don't have to back up and see what it's there for, because we saw what it's there for, that's what we've been talking about this morning. He says, on this basis now, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is our final contrast. You condemned him, God vindicated him. You killed him, God delivered him. You rejected him, God exalted him. He's not just the Christ. He's not just the anointed savior of the world. I mean, if that's all he was, he's heavy. But that's not all he is. He is also Lord, Curios, Adonai, which means supreme authority and ruler. You know you get these equations, X plus Y plus this in the brackets, cubed. If he's Lord, he's Curios, he's Adonai who's supreme authority and ruler then it all equals that he's God now when they heard this verse 37 they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what on earth do we now do and Peter said to them repent that has changed the way you think. You've been breaking the commandments. You need to recognize that and say, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. And stop doing it. Repent. You're going in one direction. You need to change direction. Change the course of your life. And for many of us, that became a reality, right? For me, it was nearly 20 years ago. 1989. When I got confronted like this group, and I said, oh my goodness, 
death began to loom large, even at 22 years old. And I was like, Jesus, Jesus is, that's who he is. And it provoked a response. And the response was, you know what? I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. That can't work no more. I'm breaking the commandments by doing that. Jesus says, if you just look at a woman to lust after her, oh my gosh. I began to respond to that. Me and my girlfriend at the time, evidently who's now my wife, we weren't married and we were living together. So you know what? No more sleeping in the same bed. I moved out of that room. I had to find a little couch somewhere else in the house, on a mat, on the floor, for a year. Because we got saved, and then it was like, whoa, okay. Hmm. Major adjustment now in my life. And we ain't got time for me to go into all the things that changed, but you know what? Everything changed. Why? Because I'd recognized who Jesus was. And that I needed to respond to him. Repent. He says. Similar to getting on a bus and thinking you're going to Lewisham. And the bus conductor says, all right. This bus is going to stop at Oxford Circus. You're like, what? You just now received. You thought you was on the right bus. But you now just received authoritative information that says you're going in the wrong direction. So what are you going to do? You're going to sit on the bus. You're not going to sit on the bus. You're going to get up off the bus in hurried fashion and quick cross the road and wait for one going in the right direction, right? That's repentance. Changing the way you think that leads to a change in the way that you act. If there ain't no change in the way you're acting, guess what? Guess what there ain't? There ain't no repentance. Now, it don't mean you're going to be perfect, but hey, there needs to be a difference. There needs to be a change, right? Repent, he says, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like we did. For the promise is to you and to your children, Jews, and to all also who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. First message. The very first day of the birthday of the church. And what a message. Be encouraged if you're like Peter and you feel like, man, I, I'm not schooled. I'm just like me. I was a postman for 17 years. Never ever thought that I'd be in a place where I'm communicating, not just information. I mean, it'd be, it'd be heavy if all I was doing was able to communicate information. For me, that would have been like, hey, that's unbelievable, Robert. But communicating I mean, how do you even define this? And if you're one of them people who feel like, oh, I ain't really got nothing to offer and I keep fumbling either over my words or my, my decisions, God can never use me. That's so untrue. In yourself, you're right. 
in myself, <laughs> Robert, don't get too enamored with yourself because it ain't really you. But when God fills us by his spirit, normal men do that which normal men can't do. Like a Moses who can't speak. Like a Gideon who feels small in his own eyes like I'm the smallest of the smallest clan. How are you going to ever? And God does remarkable things. All he desires is that we be willing and obedient. Be encouraged if that's you this morning, this afternoon even. Tonight, if I don't stop soon. <laughs> Do you hear Peter's message about Jesus of Nazareth, who is both Lord and Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, as I said at the outset, your word. It's a light to our feet and it's a lamp to our path. It's that which illuminates And brings understanding. The entrance of your word gives light and gives understanding to the simple. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to appreciate, Father, who Jesus is. And I pray that you would help us to respond in right, in right fashion. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen. So. I don't normally, I don't often do this, but if you're here and the Lord spoke to you directly by his spirit with regard to clarifying who Jesus is, you know, it's not that we have, um, we're over clever. We just appreciate what this says. You know what I mean? And myself and maybe Mark and I think Pastor Patrick, if he's around Pastor Ephraim, we're happy to pray with you. If you have questions you want to ask, having heard this, we're willing to talk to you and ultimately, hopefully, pray with you in order that you might be able to respond. We want to help you. Someone helped me, like I said, 20 years ago. We want to help you come to that place where Jesus of Nazareth doesn't just... You know what I'm saying? So... I'll be up front if you need prayer or if you'd like to talk further. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And if you're worried about death, may he give you peace. Because it has no power over you if you're in Christ. Amen.